As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Shimmy, shimmy, shingle makes you wanna mingle. And in a little while, you will be making love. Shimmy, shimmy, style. Shimmy, shimmy, stand there, the three of us, me, Sylvie and Rue, pressed up against the saloon door, brown ales clutched in our hands. Rube, neck stiff so as not to shake her beehive, stares sultrily round the packed pub. Sylvie eyes the boy hunched over the mic and shifts her gaze down to her breasts, snug in her new pink jumper. Kiss, 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 he screams. Three blokes beckon us over to their table. Fancy him? Rude doubles up with laughter. Come on then, they can buy us some beer. Three browns, please, says Sylvie before we've been asked. I've seen you in here before, ain't I? A boy leans luxuriously against a leather jacket slung over the back of his chair. Might have done. You come from Battersea, don't you? Yeah, me and Sylvie do. She don't, though. She's an heiress from Chelsea. An heiress from Chelsea. Who could they mean? Welcome to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that's curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. Every episode, we take a book out into the wild to see if the world of fiction matches up with the real world. I'm Lloyd Shepard. I'm a digital producer and writer. Hello, I'm Tim Wright. I'm a digital writer and producer of immersive fiction. And today we're going to be doing various accents... Our posh middle-class accents are going to be overlaid by the accents we use when talking to builders when they come round. Or, or indeed our children. Or our children. <laughs> we are doing Up the Junction by Nell Dunn. I never thought it could happen with me and this girl from Clapham. I was surprised that that song has absolutely nothing to do with the book other than the title. No, but I had to sing it anyway. When I read the book uh, and then saw the films, I was uh, more of which are non. I was expecting there to be a, a man who, you know, looking after a baby in a flat somewhere and the woman's gone off but that's not nothing like that happens in the book. Well, actually, in her second book, and we're talking about Nell Dunn. Nell here, Dunn, yeah. Who is the author of Up the Junction, published is in... Is that what happens in Poor Cow, then, the second yeah, book? Yeah, in Poor Cow, it's a, that's, it's a bit more like it. Uh, so okay. he's, got, he's, he's got the wrong book. He's got the wrong book. I feel that's an Elvis Costello song title. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Vaguely misogynist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so Nell Dunn, uh, Up the Junction, published in 1963. Yes, but is it set in 1963, well, Lloyd? I'm not entirely sure. 
knows when it's set, but we'll talk about that later on. Yes, that's going to be an issue. Uh, we're going to Battersea. We're going to visit the estates, the Winstanley and York estates. Yes, where Nell Dunn, she moved to the estate yeah. in 1959. Well, she moved to a house on what is now the estate. Ah, yes. We got to talk Correct. about that, about, about what the, the hell the happened down there. If you live in London these days and know anything about London, you probably think of Battersea as being quite a well-to-do swanky area. Quite a lot of expensive homes there now was not the case in the 50s and 60s. Absolutely Very, not. very, very, very different. Very gritty. Very yeah. gritty, very industrial. But I'd have to say that North Battersea, the, 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 the bit north of Clapham Junction rather than south of Clapham Junction, is still quite gritty. Yeah, it is quite gritty. As we Maybe discovered. in a slightly different way. So uh, where are we going to first? Well, we should start where Nell Dunn started, which is not on an estate in Battersea but in a rather more salubrious part of London, on the other side of the river in Chelsea, we're going to go to a rather famous location, and I'll describe why it's famous, called Cheney Walk. Lovely. I rode up the junction and bore cow when I was still young enough to believe I was immortal. Life and all its thrills were never going to end. Now, rereading these books... I remember the excitement of escaping from my unpeopled background to the energy of the city. When I went to live in Battersea in 1959, back gardens had rabbits and pigeons, dogs wandered the streets, and people sat out on doorsteps on hot summer evenings eating fish and chips. <sighs> fish and chips. She Living had you fish and chips. the dream. <laughs> I would deal with an awful lot of urban squalor if I could set out on my back step eating fish and chips every night. <laughs> Where have you brought me, Tim? We are on Cheney Walk, which is on the north side of the Thames in and London. And thus in Chelsea. We're bang smack between Albert Bridge and Battersea Bridge. Yeah, I can basically. see a river, a river bus nipping up the river as we speak. So she lived behind us in Cheney Walk. Yeah. Facing Embankment Gardens, right? Was it Embankment, Chelsea Embankment Gardens? Yes, well, basically, there used to be riverside residences back in you know, a long time ago, before they built the embankment. Before the sewer. Yes, and now you can hear the roar of the traffic on the embankment. Yeah. But it's still a very, very posh place to live. I started looking up who's lived on Cheney Walk. It's a long list, isn't it? Well, but also, if you want a kind of weird snapshot of, of Britain, yeah, of famous people in Britain, it's all there. Yeah. George Eliot died here, lived here oh, for three years. Do you know, I did not know that. Yes. She, she, at number she? four, she spent the last three weeks of her life at number four. Oh, George Eliot. And um, I didn't know that. Mike Bloomberg now owns it. Oh, does he? Yeah. Oh. Gerald Scarf lives next door. Does he? Yeah. Does that mean Jane Asher lived here? Yes. Yes. Well, there's lots of 60s people because we yeah. were saying that uh, Mick Jagger and... Mick um, Jagger and... Uh, Mick Jagger and Mar- Marianne Faithful were at number 48. There's an unspecified Where did they, get their, where did they get their Mars bars? <laughs> hey. Well, it says Keith Richards lived here, but nobody knows where. Nobody knows where, including he Keith. Yeah. Ronnie Wood lived here as well. So three of the nobody, stones. Nobody noticed. Ralph Vaughan Williams lived here for a very long time. Oh, OK. Dante Gabriel Rossetti lived here at number 16. And his neighbours complained about the noise of his peacocks. OK. But then Sol Campbell has a substantial house here. <laughs> so get this. Sol so Campbell. Get this, you get, you've got Sol Campbell, Lord Brown, former CEO of BP. Yeah. And then we go into, in the past, a number of curiously specific personalities. Sorry, it's the podcast police going past. 
We have a number of curiously specific people who lived here. Good. Bram Stoker oh. lived at number 27. Well, I was going to say, Dante Gabriel Rossetti wasn't he the chap who dug up his wife? That's right. We talked about to that. To find a book of poetry. Yeah, and his, yeah. And his secretary, Hall Kane, who was also a novelist, lived, lived with him. was his housemate. So Bram Stoker lived there. George Best had an apartment here for a <laughs> while. He? Lawrence Olivier lived here in the very 1930s. Good, very good. He's this been mentioned. T.S. Uh, Eliot lived here. That we amazing. mentioned then. Uh, Erskine Childers wrote The Riddle of the Sands here. I think we had that on our Riddle of the Sands podcast. Yes, indeed. And of course, Ian Fleming briefly had a flat here. Uh, Ian Fleming's briefly had a flat in most places in southern England. Turner died here at number 119. Blimey. So, yeah. Why, why here, Isambard Kingdom Brunel lived here. <laughs> it's crazy, right? I it goes it's on. A, and it's not a long road. One of the Mitford sisters lived here. It's not a long road, no. is it? It's a long. It's a. It's, it's fifty houses. I'm assuming that Sol Campbell bought a house here because he knows about this great cultural resonance. Well, that would be a safe bet, wouldn't it? I'm waiting for the curiously specific podcast where, which centres around Sol Campbell. Well, we could do it on Sol Campbell's gripes. We could do a podcast where every episode is him griping about a football club that didn't make him manager. Just one one point though. Yeah. Do we know why? this place has had so many famous people staying at it because it's i suppose back in the day before cars this road this would have been a, quite a peaceful place to live yeah but since the late end of the 19th century yeah it's been quite noisy and trafficy absolutely so why do people live here I've it's quite no a long idea. way from the river you can't really see the river from those houses you've got to, it's up you know 70 80 yards to the river yeah it just and, and on opposite as we will come to you were essentially looking at slums. Yeah. Not slums. Let's not say slums. Actually, should we make this a slum-free podcast? You were looking at working-class homes yeah. with factories, smog, smoke. So why do people want to live Although here? Although Nell Dunn was accused of slumming it. Now, look. So why would a woman who can afford to live in Cheney Wharf... She got married to a married guy called Jeremy Sanford. Yeah. And they moved into an apartment in Cheney Wharf. Quite a boho intellectual guy, right? Well, he was an old Etonian. Old Etonian. He wrote Cathy Come Home, right? Yes, he did. Yeah. So he was, they were both writers. Yes. I found on jeremysanford.org.uk an archive piece about Battersea. And he says that Nell had got to know Battersea by wandering over the bridge from Chelsea and exploring it on foot. So in the film, of course, the Collinson film, she arrives not on foot, but in a large chauffeur-driven Rolls-Royce and drops does. at the end of the bridge. Of course bridge. she does, yeah. And I, I gather she objected to that in the yeah, film, yeah, that yeah. that wasn't right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she'd gone wandering there, but also because Battersea was a hotbed of left-wing politics and she was a member of the Communist Party. Oh, OK. So I think she may have gone down there for political meetings and as well. And she may have liked fish and chips. That's possible, isn't it? Yeah. Nell and I had become intrigued by North Battersea, just the other side of the river. Mm. At the time, one of the poorest parts of London. It was she who had found us a terrace slum house. He's used the word slum. He's used the word slum. Terrace slum house in Lavender Road that she decided would suit us better than the Georgian mansion we occupied on the embankment in Chelsea. Oh, so they were in a full house. They weren't in a flat. No, that's right. Wow. They were loaded. Okay. Well, should we, uh, should we do the same? Should we've got we... to try and find Lavender Road. Well, we've got to try and find Lavender Road. There's a lot of places we've got to try and find. We've got to try and find a factory. Yeah. A chocolate liqueur factory. Yes, indeed. Lost so we're going to do what she did, which is we're going to wander out of Chelsea. Well, two poshos. Two poshos going and walk into... across Battersea Bridge into the notorious estates. Notorious estates. I hope we're going to be all right. Oh, we'll be fine. Um, um. 
Soho Square, the home of Movie Turn News. At St. Patrick's next door, Miss Noel Dunn arrives for her Valentine's Day wedding on the arm of her father, Sir Philip the Steel Millionaire. Her coronet was of flowers and ostrich feathers. The bridegroom was a 26-year-old writer, Mr. Jeremy Sanford. The wedding provoked wide interest for the couple were to have left on their honeymoon by balloon, but official objections put a stop to that plan. Even so, we were promised some surprise. The surprise was there wasn't a surprise, and after their reception at the Ritz, they just drove away on four balloon tyres instead. So we need to talk about Nell Mary Dunn. Yeah, what an interesting person. Yes, and she's still alive. She is. So mind your language. Lives in Kingston? Does she? Yeah, I think so. I know she, I know. The, every interview they talk about, she talks about walking her dogs in Richmond Park. Yeah. So... Yeah, she lives down that Apart way. Apart yeah. I can't tell you anything else about her. Well, I can tell you stuff about her. Yeah. She's posh. She's quite very posh. Her father was a knight of the realm. Sir Philip Dunn. And her grandfather was the man who broke the bank in Monte Carlo. Did you know that? Is that the fifth Earl of Rosalind? Uh, or a different <laughs> grandfather? Well, she's got several grandfathers, obviously. I presume she's got two. Yeah. <laughs> she might have more. You might have a step one as well, I yeah. imagine. Yeah. I think her sister married a Rothschild. Really, Serena? Oh, yeah. God, you've done your research. No, I've just got you? the Wikipedia page open. You're just, are you just reading out names I'm now? Just reading out is names. that it? Is that what this podcast is? It's, it's just me reading from reading Wikipedia out names. page. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, nice. You just hide it better than me. <laughs> Parents divorced in 1944, apparently. <laughs> so, listener, if you want to know about Nell Dunn, just go to just Wikipedia. Wikipedia page. That's Wikipedia. fine. Don't you well, worry no, about but surely, it. I mean, the, the important thing about her, she's quite posh, but she's obviously from a, back, a family that is quite open to having people do interesting things. There is actually a very good quote on the Wikipedia page where she says she only learnt to read at nine years old and she said, whenever my father saw my appalling spelling, he would laugh, but it wasn't an unkind laugh. In his laugh, there was the message, you are a completely original person and everything you do has your own mark on it. He wanted us all to be unique. Uh, It's quite nice, right? Sort of. That becomes the... The kind of where you get your confidence from, is it? Yeah, yeah. Your special. Well, you sent me a newsreel, yes, of her wedding. I know, a very public wedding, nineteen fifty-eight. Yes, it was a big society do. It in, certainly in Soho. was. So yeah. she was quite, you know, quite the thing in the news. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. right. And then she threw it all up to go and live in Battersea. Right. She says she was actually really unhappy about her circumstance she didn't like being in posh society she found it too stuffy and she didn't like the sort of formalities of it she never got to grips with them Mm -hmm. and that she was looking for a more sort of natural life she says something really good actually about that Cheney Walk place she says I hated Cheney Walk it was horrible to live with just the river opposite it wasn't contained it wasn't a talking street so she bought this cottage for 700 quid in Battersea yeah and she said, it's not so much a talking street as a jabbering street. Yeah. Here she found people chatting endlessly. Well, that's the book, right? It's just yeah. loads and loads and loads of uh, direct speech. Yeah. I felt immediately at home. I wasn't lonely anymore. Oh. So it wasn't just a straight political act of slumming it, as it no. were. Up the Junction was her first book. It was actually a collection of articles and essays from New Statesman, I think, wasn't it? What you should know about the book, yeah, listener, is that it's a series of pen pieces, but they build up into a sort of narrative about they these do. three women. There is a through line, isn't it? But in fact, they're sketches. I think four of them 
were sold individually to the new statesman, and then she started packaging it up into a book. Yeah, and it's, uh, a sh- it's quite a short book and because it's direct speech. It's like you know, quite a lot, quite quite spacey. I mean, that's her forte. Is she says she doesn't have to spend much time with people in order to pick up their the way they speak. No, she's good, isn't she? She's got an amazing ear, and she yeah. said, and I f- and she finds it irresistible that yeah. she just has to write down. So a lot of it is dialogue, isn't and it? It's interesting that both the movie adaptations. We'll talk about those in a bit. Basically, just used directly from the book. It just lifted directly. They yeah. don't try to do anything to it. Yeah. Just, um, she, she obviously, well, she wrote the, the the first one, didn't she herself? Yeah. I'd be interested to see her notebooks as to how she captured that while yeah. while, while she was down there, and then how she then worked it into a piece. I think that would be really interesting, actually. But, and also, the other thing to say about her is she's quite funny. Don't you think it's quite funny? I mean, the book's funny. Yeah. 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 And the portrait of three of working class women being very potty mouthed yeah. very interested in sex yeah, yeah. Uh, very interested in drinking uh, looning about having yeah. a laugh and not an ounce of judginess anywhere no, in the book no, at all no it's great it's an that. incredible achievement there's not even no sense at all that she's looking down on them or thinking badly of them at all it's, no. c- it's purely well and then it will pivot these, it's, a very, it's affectionate but it's also honest and it's yeah. clear headed and then it will pivot into a long piece about a backstreet abortion you know, the awful things that happen in the book are made all the more awful by the way everything else you know the other the funny bits and the, the honest bits yes they're treated well it's very matter of fact isn't it very much not sentimental in any you don't sense. really see the join do you You don't really see what she's doing it's it's, no. it's very very artfully done i think i again I've, in this interview in the independent that i found she says as a writer what i do admire about the working class is their use of language I like the narrative quality they have of talking about their lives, the storytelling and their humour. I'm tremendously influenced by carry-on films, <laughs> which I find terribly, terribly funny. Very good. Terribly, terribly funny. That's very good, isn't it? Uh, she's into carry-on films and going down the pub and eating fish and chips. Yeah. W- we're all right with Nell Dunn, We're all right we? with Nell Dunn. She could be on the team. She's team curiously specific. Yeah. Because all to live again as we used to. I'm not going to say our old houses because the youngsters live on them now. I like to see them all come back with us, all of them. All you you see now is youngsters wants to mix with youngsters, us nothing. We're nothing now. Not if you're the mother, you're nothing. We're past all fashions now. Only put on a mini once and I was abused. (laughs) My daughter thought I was showing too much. She said, Mother, for God's sake, put a longer skirt on. You've got nothing to show now. Little did she know. (laughs) In the winter, he'd leave the engine running. Phew, it didn't half get hot, stuck up in that cabin and the vibrating. Cool. Come on, let's shoot in here. We push through the swing doors into the pub and pause a moment to case the Saturday night joint before it closes in around us. My baby was born Friday. A son it was. I'm glad it's a boy. I'll soon teach him to steal. Wait till he's nine or ten, then send him out pinching while I sit back. What are you going to do till he's nine or ten? I'll send me wife out on the game. You wouldn't do that. I would. I'd send me mother too. He would too, if anybody would have her, says Sylvie, licking the brown foam around her lips. The boys close in. Excuse me, but with that dress, it's difficult to stop my eyes wandering. 
went, as long as your hands don't wander too, mate. All right. It's quite lively in that quite pub. Quite lively in that pub. Sounds, got, sounds like fun. Yeah. Shame it's closed. Shame it's closed. <laughs> it's not open. It's a Friday morning. The pub's shut. It's Where a, have you brought me now, Tim? Well, I've brought you We're to... We're standing outside a shut pub. I know. Nothing this sadder. Is, I know. This is the Duke of Battersea. Duke, Duke, Duke. Duke of Battersea. So it was called The Prodigal's Return. The Prodigal's Return. And it's, it's uh, the pub they go into is actually named a couple of pages earlier as The Prodigal. That's right. And it's on the corner of Battersea Bridge Road and Westbridge Road. And if you walk down Westbridge Road, you're this into... Is where, so Westbridge Road will take you into... Into the estates. The estates. In fact, we're looking, I'm looking at an estate now, a low-rise one. It's been here a long time. It was first here in 1871, it says. There's a picture of it I will share with Patreon subscribers of Always it in 19, 1910. It's a big place. Yeah. It was rebuilt in the 1920s. What I remember about it, I used to hang around here a bit and drive past here, is it seemed to change its name every few years. Can I just point out that when we go to a, a, a book in London, we go somewhere, yeah. almost inevitably you will say the words, I used to hang out here. <laughs> and it's like, you, you were everywhere. You were like the Zalig of, uh, of the London sea. I was very busy. <laughs> very busy. Yeah, for a few years. Until you settled down. Now I don't go out. <laughs> I'm tired now. But I, I kind of feel you've done your turn. Uh, well, because I used to... You put the I, hours in. I spent a summer living on Prince of Wales Drive. Did you? It, yeah. That's the other thing you always say, I spent a summer living. <laughs> and then I went out with someone who lived around the back of Prince of Wales Drive for a bar. So, did, this, so, whole, this whole podcast experience just makes me feel like I misspent my youth. No, I'm... Mis- not doing it. Not, <laughs> not misspending my youth. I was going to say, I misspent my youth. Yeah. No doubt about it. But I remember that it used to be called... Now, what was it called? I think it was called... It was called The Pitcher and the Piano for a while. Oh, Do you right. Which that? was like an awful oh, kind group. of chain, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was also The Draft House. And anybody else knows what The Draft House, The Duke of Battersea... What other names there were for this yeah. pub? They, it kept changing yeah. from the 90s onwards. I think, basically, it, it doesn't do very well and another chain takes it over, basically. I suppose it's not superbly located, is it? For Although it's located well for the estates, but yeah. uh, there's no public transport around here and there's no, there's I think no it's shops telling, or anything like that. I think it's telling that Brewdog have got it now yeah. and that they are marketing it very much to the young people. Okay. Because there's a very young and quite wealthy demographic yeah. living just over here, Maybe, this side, yeah. who are all the people who would like to live in Chelsea. So you've got the Bassey Bridge Road, and it sort of runs north to south. And on one side, the, on the sort of the eastern side of Bassey Bridge Road, you've got the park, and you've got all the old Victorian housing. Yeah. It's quite well to do on that side. Yes. You've also got the new developments, but the other side of the park, you've got the stuff around Bassey Power Station. But on this side, of the west side of Bassey Bridge Road, is the old there's working still, class area, right? The, yeah, and there's still quite a lot of public housing there. Yeah. There's, slowly but surely, some of it's becoming private and gated. Being eaten into. But the other side, no, over there, that's South Chelsea there, that side. That's probably how it's marketed, you isn't it? You know Dock, by the way? You know what, because we're really near it, just down here on the left. Do you know what was there? Why there was a dock there? It's no. Main, it's main trade. No, I don't. Norwegian ice. Oh, really? Yeah, had a massive ice store down wow. there. And they shipped it in from Norway. Very good. So there was quite a lot of Norwegians hanging around here as well. Quite cold Norwegians, presumably. 
Yeah, everybody. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Even though an ice house features prominently in my fourth book, I never knew that. Well, there check you go. it out. Yeah, I will. Okay. Right, we need to go further down. I'm going to show you an example of the kind of terrace housing that Nell lived in. And one it's now hard to bought. find. Well, they've all been knocked down, but I found one road that is exactly the oh, right superb. age. Lovely. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you how much it's worth now. Okay, yeah. Hold, hold, hold on to your wallets. You're listening to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that is curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. If you want to listen to the second part of our Up the Junction adventure right now without any ads, you can do that by going to patreon.com and subscribing to our account at Curiously Specific. There you will find not only part two of this lovely podcast, but you'll also find photographs, sometimes with video, and there's a whole load of show notes that include all our research for making this podcast so that you can bone up on the Winstanley estate, <laughs> Nell Dunn, and, and the uh, winter of 1963, and the beaching report. Good luck with that. <laughs> you'll then, also find a map up there, and you're doing this one, so it will be a good map. Well, people have been complimenting well, you Rue on your map. Well, Rue liked my uh, map about Buddha One Suburbia. person complimented you well, on your map. So I'm taking it. I'm taking it. You can subscribe to that for £2 a month. You get all that for £2 a month. Yeah. Uh, if you want to pay £5 a month, you can join us on our Discord server and meet like-minded people who tell me how good my maps are. Yeah, they're uh, bigging you up. Yeah, they're all bigging me up on there. Actually, we've had some very good discussions recently about uh, has anybody reenacted the Heart of Darkness properly by going up the Congo? Yeah, well, uh, Pauline from New Zealand is uh, was talking about that. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, 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 really good stuff. Uh, so join us if you want to for that. Otherwise, put in the £2 and get to part two as quick as you can. And if you feel you can't afford £2, you'll always be able to listen to this for free on the main podcast platforms. You just have to listen to some ads and you'll have to wait a week for the second episode. Yeah, you don't want to do that. Shame. Back to the pod. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cast. So this book came out in 1963, yeah. although it is a collection of essays that must have come out. Between the end of the Chatterley Band and the Beatles' first LP. Oh, is that your theme? Well, this is the first line of the poem, isn't it? Uh, yeah, Sexual intercourse began in 1963. Ah, that's right, yes. Well, because we've done 62 with the Ipcress file. Yeah. We've done 64 with Ruth Rendell's Ooh, Doom with Death. Very good. Yeah. So we've, we've, we've been skirting around this year. We're Although we did, actually, in. you know, we did, do, we did do another book that came out this year. Stig of the Dump Stig came of out the in Dump. That's right, it was the 60th anniversary, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, good shout. Yeah. yeah. So we, we should know this era quite well. Well, Philip Larkin wasn't wrong, right, about sexual intercourse beginning in 1963, because everyone's shagging this uh, year. Are they? Yeah. It's a, John Profumo resigned. Most memorably, it was the divorce case of the Duke and Duchess of Argyle. Oh, that's quite a famous case. We may case. have known Nell Dunn, presumably. You're going to have to explain what that is, because I Well, I so the, the, the Duke it, and Duchess were, went for a, a very messy divorce in which... The Duke had produced a list of 88 men that he said his wife had slept with. 88? The list is said to include two government ministers and three members of the British royal family. But the memorable thing is there was a photograph of the Duchess of Argyll performing oh, uh, yes. Filatio on yes. an, un- an unseen man. And she's all she's wearing is her pearls. She's not wearing anything else. She's naked. So there was huge... Um, huge, debate what? about who Get, finish that sentence <laughs> there huge, quickly. There was an enormous debate about who the man was. There were five leading suspects: Duncan Sandys, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., John Cohane, an American businessman, Peter Coombe, a former press officer at the Savoy Hotel, and brilliantly Sigismund von Braun, brother of Werner von Braun. <laughs> the divorce was granted. The presiding judge said the evidence established that the Duchess was a completely promiscuous woman whose sexual appetite could only be satisfied with a number of men. Her attitude to the sanctity of marriage was what moderns would call enlightened, but which in plain language was wholly immoral. So she she got the book thrown at her. Well, it makes you realise why this book made such a big impression when it came out. Was it's it's about women talking frankly about having sex quite a lot with lots of different men. Yeah, yeah. So I think it was also criticised as an immoral book. By yeah. Well, it's that time, isn't it? It's, it's that. T- I mean, the Beatles album, first album, was actually released in March. I wonder when how long it would take you to get to. They the didn't Beatles. recorded it in February and they released it in March. It's extraordinary. They recorded it? the whole album in a day. Yeah. You've also got one thing that she doesn't talk about is it was unbelievably cold in oh, the winter of 1963. Yes, it was in January 1963. The sea froze for one mile out from shore at Herne Bay in Kent. The sea froze. It was froze for four miles out to sea from Dunkirk. So the channel was freezing up in 1963. Yeah. And then the upper reaches of the River Thames froze over. Now, this was interesting. The only reason the Thames didn't freeze yeah. in, uh, in London, do you know why they didn't freeze in London? It's too polluted, presumably. Battersea Power Station. Oh, it kept it warm. Kept it warm. By pumping a load of shit into the yeah. river. Hot effluent from the two thermal power stations at Battersea and Bankside. That's what stopped it freezing over, they think. <laughs> nice. So it was really, really cold. Those buildings in Battersea would have had just one fireplace in the ground floor yeah. and nothing else. Yeah, it would have been cold. And no running And they have water. to keep the factory cold for the chocolate, don't they, because so it doesn't melt. Yeah. yeah. So it. it would have been cold, it cold, would have been cold. It really cold. I'll tell you, that winter contributed to the demise of 
another famous uh, female feminist writer right. of the era. Sylvia Plath died in yeah, 1963. She did. Now, she actually does talk about that the pipes froze and the children were sick in that winter. And so her depression returned Deep big and... time as a result of so living I didn't know that. the cold. Oh, wow. uh, so obviously her novel, The Bell Jar, yeah. was published in 63. Yeah. So that's a weird juxtaposition. Up really? the Junction and The Bell Jar. Really? I, quite, I, quite like, I think if you wore, read those back to back, it'd be kind of interesting. Yeah. Meanwhile, of course, the men are writing Ice Station Zebra, Alistair MacLean. And Horse Underwater, Len Dayton. The Beaching Report was released in 1963. Ah, big year for you. Have you read it? In a future podcast, you're going to hear me experiencing something tremendously exciting, courtesy of Tim, that's train-related, but I'll leave that for another day. <laughs> but The Beaching Report was released in 1963. Well, that's interesting, isn't it, that they're smashing up the railways then. There's a lot of rebuilding going on, and yep. we're going to have to talk about the development of the estate and yeah. like the enthusiasm for smashing down slums and old buildings and putting up new ones. Yeah. That year, it was a big year for concrete. Yeah, yeah. Because you've got the M4, the M6, and the M2 yeah. all getting built. Well, we talked about the M4 starting in our Darkest Rising yeah. podcast. The National Theatre opens, yeah. which is a massive concrete building, and the UEA opens in Norwich, a big, yeah. big, big cultural it's moment. It's almost like they're finally waking up from the Second World War, really, because the other thing that happened in 63 is national service was ended. Yes. Well, maybe they just finally had the money to start doing Economic this growth in 1963 was 7.5%. Oh, Can you believe that in this sick old country that 7.5% growth I think that's why Liz Truss wants to go back to that era isn't it the anti-growth coalition is stopping her from taking us back to 1963 yeah which is a shame isn't it it is a shame well it's a shame we can't send her back to 1963 bit politics (laughs) bit of politics she could then spend a happy time watching summer holiday yes from Russia with love Yep. From Russia with love. Matt Monroe. Tom Jones, and I challenge you to sing the theme tune to Tom Jones. No. And, of course, one of the greatest films ever made okay, for me. a small boy from Norfolk. Yeah. The Great Escape. <laughs> Good luck. They call me Big X. <laughs> much in the company of other writers, poets. I much prefer doctors, midwives, lawyers, anything but writers. I think writers and artists are the most narcissistic people. Well, I I mustn't say that. I like many of them. In fact, a great many of my friends kind of But I must say, what I admire most, or I certainly find myself looking toward, is the person who masters an area of practical experience and can teach me something. I mean, my local midwife has taught me how to keep bees. Well, she can't understand anything I I write. (laughs) And uh, I I find myself liking her, may I say, more than most poets. And and among my friends, I find these people who know all about boats or know about a certain sport or know about how to cut somebody open and remove an organ. Well, I'm fascinated by this, this mastery of the practical. And... I must say, I feel as a poet, one lives a bit on air, and uh, um, I, I, I always like someone who can teach me something practical.
past some torn down prefabs and we walk over the erupted foundations looking for the drains. There's a gorgeous bloke what works in the bread shop. Should we go in? In we go and buy two fourpenny pies and out again. Oh, shame. He weren't in there. <laughs> so everything's gone. Well, there's, there's constant references to them walking past debris. Yeah. Things that have been knocked down. Yeah. Because she was writing this book in, well, around 1960, 1961. Yeah. We'll talk about when we think it's set. And at the time, this, this whole area was being basically cleared, wasn't it, for building new estates. or new, Actually, new estates had already gone up. And more estates were to go up during the 60s. Yeah, she's right in the middle of it. And yeah. she's right in the middle of it. And actually finding a, um authentic terraced street of the old working class kind in Battersea is no easy task anymore. But you found one. Well, I didn't. To be fair, I, Simon Hogg found it for Simon me. Hogg. Well done, Simon. Simon Hogg is a Labour councillor in Wandsworth. In, for Latchmere, in fact. And he writes a blog. And he did a post called Why Was the Wynn Stanley Estate Built? Which is where we're going yeah and the Wynn Stanley estate is what was built over the old the landscape of up the junction yeah basically yeah. so we're going to have to go in there but he does say in this blog that uh, if you want a sense of what those roads look like you need to come to Atherton Road Atherton Road round yeah. the, is it all Atherton Road I think yeah, I, go, it's cur- I don't know what that Ben's road round. curving round is but both those terraces they're exactly what the photographs look like aren't yeah. they and it's round the back of the Latchmere pub. Yes, she talks about, uh, well not she does, and one of the, her characters does, talks about meeting a, a man round the back of the Latchmere. Yes. Now the Latchmere pub is one end of Atherton Street, but if I look behind me, yeah. I can see what is now the Latchmere Leisure Centre. Was I used the, to bring my kids. That's right. My, with the wave machine. Both my kids learned to swim there. Very exciting wave machine in the Latchmere. It was yeah. worth the drive. Yeah. You were telling me that was used to be just a, a swimming pool. Latchmere Baths. Latchmere Baths. Very authentic Victorian baths. It's one of those ones like the one, the baths halls in Scunthorpe we went to for Get Carter. Yeah. That in the winter, they'd drain it and board it over and they'd have concerts and dance halls in there. Excellent. I think that's when you'd go there and to see boys and then have a snog out the back. Out the back. So you think it's out the back of the Latchmere Baths, not the Latchmere Pub? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, rather. Is that right. where you would go and meet someone? <laughs> probably not today, right? You'd probably get arrested. <laughs> Around the back I of the I don't remember in my gadding about days. Yeah. I don't remember doing Having a that. snog around the back of the Latchmere Leisure Centre. Uh. <laughs> so actually, if you stand here, where we're standing at the end of Atherton Road, yeah. you've got terraced housing on one side, you've got the Latchmere Leisure Centre, you've got some low-rise 60s developments up there. It's kind of all here, isn't it? It is all here, but the other thing, of course, is that you couldn't afford to live here now. Oh, right. Well, OK. Um, do you want to... Tell wanna... me how much a house here costs now. <laughs> Do you want to sit down? No, it's <laughs> wet and raining. I know. 15 Atherton Street. Yeah. Sold in 2018. So quite a while ago. Freehold, four bed terrace. Yeah. Want to guess? 1.145 Blimey. million. 28 Atherton Street, 2015, so even earlier, sold for 1.2 million. Gosh. So they're going to be easily 1.5 million now. Gosh. To have a house in the slums. Well, so there, there you, you are. Them's the breaks. Well, 
somebody but did a nice bit of business turning them from public housing into private sale and then doing them up and selling to people from Chelsea, didn't they? They did. I hey? wonder where all that money went. I wonder where that went. Yeah. Should we ask the councillor? Let's let's ask <laughs> let's ask him. Not him, obviously. Not him. Previous He's, previous councillors may need he to, have to answer it. for that. He's Labour. A few hours later, Rube started to shriek. Her jet black hair stuck to her face and tiny rivulets of blue rinse coursed down her white cheeks. She was semi-delirious. The smell of Sunday dinner cooking floated up the stairs. Rube bent up tight with pain. It's lucky I ain't got me health and strength no more, else I'd do him, do him right up I would, said her mum. Sylvie came in. I'll hold her now, mum, if you want to go and have your dinner. Ray says he'd hit him sky high if it wasn't that he might get him nicked for it. The voice of Johnny sailed up from the kitchen. You'd better watch it from me too. I shan't always be staying in, will I? Rube shrieked again. Let me ring a doctor. I'm all right then. In the kitchen, everyone was eating. The light was full on. Benny King sang. Oh yes, she said yes. And she opened her arms. Oh yes, she said yes. And she closed her eyes. Mm. It's a horrible scene, isn't it? So Rube has been to Wimbledon for an abortion, right? A yes. Backstreet's abortion. Yep, she paid five quid. It's a very powerful scene. In it is. the Ken Loach adaptation, it's actually Sylvie who has the abortion, the Ken Loach adaptation, not Rube. That that scene is basically her screaming in pain, right? Yeah, it's pretty When you think shocking. that was shown on the BBC in 1963, it must have been... 65. 65. It must have been quite impactful. 10 million people watched it, yeah. apparently. We've talked about Ken Loach a little bit before because in our Kestrel for a Knave yeah. podcast, because he made Kez. Yeah. Uh, not long after he'd made this, actually. Yeah. I think the most influential person in the whole process seems to be Tony Garnett, actually, who's the producer. Yeah. And he only recently revealed, I think only about 10 years ago, revealed that the reason he he got so keen to show this scene in a graphic form and get some kind of reaction was that his mother had died when he was five, I think. Well, very, very, very yeah. really young, yeah. and she died from sepsis after having had an illegal ab- abortion. Yeah, because at this time abortion was illegal. In, yeah, yeah. In, in, in and the then her, his dad got so depressed and upset about his mum dying that he killed himself four weeks oh, later. Yeah. So that's why he was so passionate about showing it, sort of warts and all, and getting people to understand what's going on, as it were. So did it have an impact? The, the BBC version? Yes, it did. Yeah, because in fact, by 19, is it 1968, the Abortion Act? Obviously, Mary Whitehouse wrote and said it ought to be not be shown and, and be banned and anything like it should never be seen again. Of course she did. It did provoke a lot of public uh, outcry that led to the Abortion Act of 68, proposed by one David Steele. The, t- the TV adaptation, it was the Wednesday play, wasn't it? Yeah. It was a regular slot. Yeah. It was only an hour and... 10 minutes or something, the, the adaptation. Mm. Nell Dunn wrote it. I would say it is absolutely brilliant. It's mm. so cleverly done in terms of the way they're speaking to each other and you just feel like you're in it. You yeah. don't feel like you're watching them. You feel like you're with them in the space that they're in, the pub, the factory, the flat. It's just really, really well done. Now, interestingly, it was then made into a feature film mm-hmm. in 68 Yeah, it came out which I've watched the first half an hour of, is really bad. Oh, no. It's really bad because it, it's quite meta in that Nell Dunn is actually a character in it. She's not called Nell. She's called something else. But the start of the film is her being driven 
in a chauffeur-driven Rolls-Royce and dropped off on Chelsea Bridge, not Battersea Bridge, Chelsea Bridge, next to Battersea Power Station. And from then on, she's watching them. Um, she's watching all these people. Yeah, yeah. So it's really voyeuristic. Yeah. And it's shot in this kind of eye-watering technicolor that does sort of, you know, that goes a bit weird. The next film that that director made, I noticed, was The Italian Job. Which is obviously, of course, peerless and uh, unimproved. What I hadn't realized, that director, he's the godson of Noel Coward, which is sort of why he got the gig. Oh. Quite a lot of the male faces that appear in his version of Up the Junction also appear in The Italian Job. That's quite good, though, because then they're doing low-level villain crime down yeah. in Battersea, nicking cars yeah, and yeah. speeding around on bikes. And then they get the call from Michael Caine for the big one. Yeah, I quite <laughs> like the idea that the tally man from Battersea turns into uh, you know, uh, a planner for a Well, down the, the calf, they would have gone to Scala's, yeah. and then the, guy, the Italian guy would have been talking about, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. about this. Um, they showed the, show the cine reel going. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Yeah, 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 perfect. That it's would be very good. You know, Nell Dunn should have written that screenplay. That's yeah. what should have happened. So if you want to watch a film version of uh, Up the Junction, and beware, by the way, because if you go onto IMDb and you search for Up the Junction, there's only one film on there, and yeah. it's the 68 film. But you can watch the original one. If you've got Prime Video, it's it's on Prime Video for free. You can okay. watch the original one. I bought it on YouTube for like a couple of quid. It's excellent. It's really, really good. It's really interesting, isn't so it? So we've done that. As you say, we've done that in Kez, which is also excellent. And yeah. it's really interesting that he made films that were very, very faithful to the original book and written or co-written by the book's author. Yes. And it works. Quite well, often he, that doesn't work, Because right? he also collaborated with her on Poor Cow as well. Yeah. Which also had a significant impact, I think, on yeah. living conditions. Yeah, for, housing, wasn't it? it yeah, was yeah, about thing, yeah. housing. Terence Stamp is very good-looking in that film. Yeah, well, d- t- to be fair, Dennis Waterman is very good-looking in the film version of Up the Junction. Have you ever seen um, Steven Soderbergh's The Limey? Yes, what a great film. Yeah, but I you know it. that's... So that's then, Terence Stamp, right? It's Terence Stamp, but the, all the footage of him thinking about his youth, yeah. that's from Paul Cow. Oh. He's the same character. Oh, wow. That, Nicely done, yeah. Steven Soderbergh. Yeah. Where are we going next? Ah, it's time to visit the smelly factory. Lovely. Gartens. Gartens. The smell of cow cake is going to come upon you. This man smells. That's what I said. In fact, this man smells for a living. He's one of a team of smellers employed by Wandsworth Borough Council to sniff out the notorious Battersea smell, a pungent, burning odour that has been plaguing the residents here for a long time. Comes up thicker and thicker every time. It's like a white fog sometimes. It's worse than drains, it really is. You know, it's just... It's all over the house. We can't even go upstairs tonight and get rid of it because it's there the whole time, you know. It's a ghastly smell, really and truly. Sometimes it smells like burnt sugar, you know, like you've got sugar under the grill. You know, but it's coming from all around. We're right in the stink here. The sweet smell of cow cake from gardens blows up the road with the violet smoke from the power station. I think if you don't reckon someone, it drives you mad if they're jealous. But if you think something of a bloke, you like him to be a bit possessive. Sylvia and I walk up the summer evening road to the prodigal. An old lady in slippers comes out of the off-licence with a zip bag weighing her sideways. From open windows, the telly calls. But Ted, he used to tie me when I slipped round a corner to put a bet on for me dad. I was the youngest bride in Battersea, married at 15, had might when I was 15 and a half. Ten minutes after he was born... I was sitting up in bed, sucking a stick of rock. Stick of rock? Yeah. Glucose, sweets. Glucose, well. Which is very apposite. 
Well, that was the Battersea heliport in full action. Yeah, you can hear it. <laughs> We're standing, uh, sheltering from the rain at the side of the River Thames, standing at a place called Plantation Wharf, which is a, a sequence of old wharf-side buildings that have now been transformed into high-rent flats, I would say. Yes, and um, each, each one's named after a particular colonial commodity. But none of it seems to actually be relevant to actually what was here. So Plantation no. Wharf wasn't called Plantation Wharf. No, it's called Southampton Wharf, yeah. weirdly. And, uh, so we've got Ivory House, Calico House, Cinnamon House. I don't think those things came in here. I think no. they went into the West India docks further downstream. I agree. But so what did come in here was sugar. Sugar. Because you've taken me to the site of gardens. Yes. Very exciting. It's quite really good, exciting. isn't it? Neither of us had really been here before, no. we? So we're, we're on the uh, Thames side in Battersea, between Battersea Bridge and uh, Wandsworth Bridge. Yep. So Gartens is mentioned in the book, but also what's mentioned is the terrible smell. Yes, so it's a glucose factory, we should say. It's a glucose factory, and it, oh, its byproduct was starch, uh, I believe. Uh, Battersea generally was known to be very smelly. Right. Where we're standing, right, mm. you've got the wharf side, but all the way, all round us was factories. Yeah. Of various kinds. You've just shown me the map from 1955. That's right. At least a dozen different factories of different types. The major ones were a steelworks, this Garton's Glucose factory, and then the Price's Candle factory. Yeah. I found an article by the Evening Standard from a few years ago called Aroma Sweet Home. See mm. what the sub-editor's done there. It's mm. quite a lame one. It's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, it's by Sarah McConnell. Battersea smells better these days. The odours of what one resident graphically described as a mix of rotting animal feet from the garden's... Animal feet? Yes. Wow. From the garden's glucose factory, gin fumes from the distillery in York Road, and pungent yeast from the Guinness Brewery that used to be down by Wandsworth Bridge. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. They've all vanished. None of them are here. And now... It says here, people, carriers and Volvos jostle for the limited parking spaces. They do. They very much do. There's not a lot of people about. But what was was a a key industrial area in London. And opposite, which are now a kind of uh, one, two, three, four, five, six kind of big flat warehouse flats buildings, was Fulham Power Station. Yeah, which is a staggering building. They've gone to all that effort to save... Battersea Power Station. But they didn't bother with Fulham. And Fulham Power Station had four chimneys, but uh, in a row rather than on the but corner of the like building. they old wharfside buildings as well, don't yeah, they? Yeah, but they've been built in homage to that, haven't they? Do you think so? In the, in the 80s. They're quite a good homage. Yeah. All the photographs of the Fulham Power Station, it, it almost looks like it's on this side of the river. It looms so large. When they talk about the chimneys... They talk about over, the power station. They're talking about Fulham Power I think when people read this book, they're going to think, oh, that's Battersea Power Station. It's not, it it's, is Fulham. it's Fulham Power Station, of which there's no sign left. But I do recommend that you go and search for pictures of it because it's a very dramatic industrial building. Or you subscribe to our Patreon page and you'll you know, be I sharing think it, some pictures of it. Oh, yes. OK, maybe I'll do that. <laughs> Don't search. <laughs> Pay us two pounds and then do the search. Yeah. I feel that if Pink Floyd had flown a big inflatable animal over Fulham Power Station, uh, they might have saved it. If it was still there in 1978 or whatever it was. No, I'm not sure. When, uh, yeah, I think it just about was. Right. But maybe earlier. Maybe maybe important that if Buddy Holly had, <laughs> had flown an inflatable animal over it, yeah. they might have preserved it. Yeah. 
I think mentions of Buddy Holly and Flight are unfortunate at this stage. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I didn't know this was here, I must say. I mean, I no. didn't know the wharf was here. I didn't know the factories were here. And I certainly didn't know the estate was here, the, you know, the terraced yeah. housing estate. So this is all new, and it's on our doorstep, which is a bit shaky. Yeah. And it was massively polluting. Yeah. Stinky, polluting yeah. place. Chemical, mainly chemical-based chemical, works, right? Chemical-based works, yes. And, of course, everybody who lived in the houses out the back there either worked here, but also all their children had terrible respiratory diseases. Yeah, we shouldn't, uh, shouldn't uh, romanticise this, should we? It was really grim, I think. Yeah. So it was smoggy, toxic air well, all did, around here. But they could get easy access to fish and chips, to be fair. So, you know... Swings and roundabouts. Every, every cloud. <laughs> every chemical cloud. Well, that's the end of part one of our Up the Junction adventure. And we haven't even got to the junction We yet. haven't even gone to the train station. No, we've managed to avoid that, haven't yeah. we? I'm afraid that we will be going to the train station in part two. Yes, but we'll also be going to another pub. And we'll also be going to the estate. That's the highlight. That is, is the to highlight. Actually, we're going to talk a lot about the York and Wynn Stanley estate, which is where Nell Dunn's house would have been. Well, it would have been. It's what it replaced. What Nell Dunn, Nell, well, Nell, Nell Dunn's house was, right? It, they yes. Put it on top. Or of I it. could say where Nell Dunn's house would have been. Uh, I didn't want to give the impression that Nell Dunn's house is still there or somewhere on the estate. Was what the point I was trying to make. Okay. It's uh, no longer there. It's been crumped. Yes. Um, and uh, and uh, the I did whole it very very badly. Well, and the whole place is about to get crumped again. Yeah. So we'll be discussing the past and future of the York and Winstanley estate. Yeah. I'm wondering who the Nell Dunn of today is, who's got a flat down there now. Little Sims. And is... and is <laughs> oh, Yeah, look, I sound relevant. <laughs> Little Sims. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. If you want to hear the second part of this adventure and listen to me standing around in the Winstanley estate for an uncomfortably long period of time in the rain, uh, you can hear it right now if you subscribe to our Patreon page for two quid. It's already there on the server waiting for you. Otherwise, you're going to have to wait a week and you're going to have to listen to it with some ads on it. Yes, but you might as well do it straight away just to find out which gang Lloyd finally joined. Yeah, it's a, it's a big moment. Yeah. I am now a member of a gang. Yes, mainly a bunch of train spotters in Clapham Junction, I think. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.